Hello, creeps. I bid you welcome back to the Eldritch Review podcast. I am Dr. Jack Al Creeper. The Eldritch Review is the podcast dedicated to reviewing and discussing horror movies from anywhere in the 1920s to the 1940s and beyond. Before we get to today's episode, I want to say a few words to the creepy community and the monster fam. First of all, I want to say a monstrous thank you to all of my creeps and each and every member of the monster fam for showing up and showing out. When I announced this episode last week, the response was absolutely insane. From comments to DMs to shares, I was flabbergasted when I looked at my insights the next day, and it's truly all thanks to you. If it wasn't for my creeps of the Eldritch Review and the monster community, there is absolutely no way I would be here doing what I love each and every week. I know I say this a lot, but I truly mean it. I am one lucky monster to be a part of such an incredible community and to be beloved by many. To know I've made this deep of an impact in a community and a fandom that truly means the world to me is just so humbling. I'm humbled and I'm at such a loss for words. Thank you all so deeply. Second of all, Believe it or not, creeps, we are just three episodes away from the season finale of season two. It seriously feels like just yesterday that this season was being planned and just getting started. I want to say thank you again to all of you for supporting each and every episode and truly making season two the best season of the Eldritch Review thus far. Although this is far from the last season, I still just can't help but feel so accomplished and grateful. I think season two compared to season one is no contest. Having a guest on nearly every episode minus three in the season thus far, meeting new creeps, developing a stronger relationship with those already existing, joining Team UMU, and so much more. Like I said, I'm already humbled. I feel so indebted to all of you and I can't say thank you enough. And finally, third of all, I would like to dedicate this episode to my partner's father, Ron Levinson. Ron is such a great person to all, an amazing husband, an incredible and supportive father, a hilarious man, and so much more. It was this season of the show I came to learn how much Abbott Costello meant to him, especially this movie, and it just strengthened our bond because I too have a very soft spot for this movie. Ron, thank you for being you and for loving and appreciating me like a third son. You mean a ton to me, and I can't thank you for all you have done for me so far, especially including me and your family. So with all of that being said, this episode is dedicated completely and entirely to you. I love you, Dad. On today's episode of The Eldritch Review, I am so pleased and excited to welcome this never-before-heard guest on the show, a contributor and the creator of Universal Studios Monsters, a die-hard metalhead, a mental health advocate, and everyone's favorite strawberry wolfman, another one of my greatest friends. Please welcome Ian, the Wolfman, Bates. Jeez, man, you got me blushing over here. <laughs> no, I'm I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, it's been a long time coming, and um, I'm really, really thankful for this opportunity, Parker. Hey, Ian, you said it, man. It truly has been a long, long time coming. Words can't explain nor express how excited and really how grateful I am to finally have you on the Eldritch Review after so long. For those who don't know, I was supposed to make my very first two guest show special, The Wolfman, last season, and I was going to feature Brian Rodriguez from Uni Monsters and Ian, but Ian had so much going on behind the scenes at the time of the recording and the episode schedule, so he had to decline even though he really didn't want to. 
I promised Ian that I would get him on season 2 if he had the availability, which he did. And now he's finally here. I'm so happy and I'm so freaking excited. So, Mr. Larry Talbot, the floor is yours. Before you lose your mind and become a wolf, please tell us a little bit more about you and what do you do? <laughs> yeah, um, so, you know, as you s stated, I am the creator and one of the co-hosts of Universal Studios Monsters on Instagram. Uh, and, and London Horrors, who was a, a previous guest uh, earlier this season, is my co-host. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I've been running Universal Studios Monsters since the end of June 2019. So we're coming up on our second anniversary, our second monsterversary, rather. And uh, it's just been insane to me how exponentially the page has grown, the community has grown, the people I've met, the relationships forged, all just starting simply out of this passion to honor the legacy and hopefully meet new like-minded people and offer some trivia, fun facts, education, uh, just to make sure that the monsters never die. Um, so, so that's what uh, the, the page is all about for me. Um, you know, I'm it's, it's my utmost passion and it's only been uh, just further rooted inside of me since um, starting the page and it's something that you know i saw a picture of, of karloff as the monster when i was like three or four years old and uh just obsessed immediately um and you know i'm knocking on 30 and it's like geez you know almost three decades of my life it's like monsters um and, and you know i i love all kinds of nerd and pop culture and uh it's just it's nice to have found this community because growing up I didn't know anybody else that really loved and appreciated the Universal Monsters. Even when I started the page, like I had no clue that there were people out there, uh, you know, like you and me. And um, it was just something that I was essentially doing for myself. You know, I wanted to sit down and rewatch these movies. And I started posting reviews and I started researching and reading books and uh, listening to commentaries and, and that sort of thing. and. Um, I, I learned a whole lot and then just out of, you know, doing, doing that for, for me just blew up and, you know, I'm, I think the page is sitting at 20, almost 27.5 thousand followers. And to me, that's just like unbelievable. Uh, and I always say it, it's never, it's never about me. Um, and for a long, long time, no one knew who ran the page. Like, I think once I started talking to Steven and, and got involved with some other people in the monster community, and they were like, people kind of want to know who's behind the USM page. And I was like, oh, I'm shy, I'm scared. <laughs> um, but uh, th that quickly went away. And, and I love telling people, like, you know, we uh, London and I do our, our live stream video series uh on, on instagram we are the monsters and uh I'll, I'll occasionally you know make a joke about myself like yeah you know i used to be like real shy and quiet and timid and uh and people in the comments will be like ian quiet like what no there's no way and but that's just like a testament to how amazing this community is how inviting and welcoming everybody is and once you finally 
have an audience, I'm sure you, you probably understand this, Parker. Once you finally have an audience that cares and will listen, it's like, yeah, I'm not going to shut up. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Honestly, Ian, like, I totally, you know, I love your story. And for me, it was the same way. You know, I felt the same way. I didn't think that there were people out there who appreciated the Universal Monsters because I, I have a community that I know here in Arizona that they are all about, you know, horror in general. They don't really specify but you know it's like our own little monster fam and you know they talk about horror all the time but they talk about you know the modern horror like you know the friday the 13th the halloweens the screams you know movies like that that are more modern i call them the modern marvels and i mean i'm sure that they have respect for the universal monsters but they're not as like out there and black and white as i am and yeah you know for me personally you know i've always wanted to take my love for horror and just do something with it because i'm like it's such an extreme love and it's such an extreme passion of mine that there's just no way that I can just sit back and not do anything you know what I mean at first I was like maybe I'll do like artwork or maybe I'll do like you know Instagram posts here and there but I was like that doesn't have as much of an impact for me you know and when it came to you know quarantine and like staying at home all the time I was like you know I have all this time and I've always wanted to do a podcast so you know it, it was crazy man it was just guns ablaze and I just dived in head first I didn't look back and you know like I said in the very beginning I mean this monster community has it's been insane you know for all of us and it's just so incredible that you and I together I guess went from you know we don't know anybody in this monster community we don't know who will appreciate these monsters like we do but yet we look at it and we're like hey you know there's been a community this whole time we just didn't realize we just didn't know the people yet you know it's crazy yeah, yeah special man i honestly you know i have so much respect for you in london because you know you guys do such incredible content you know i love watching the we are the monsters i watched it last week with Luis. of course i was on a few weeks ago as well with london it's just it's such a good time you know you guys do incredible work and you know from one monster contributor because i'm a part of umu so from one monster contributor to the other i i have deep respect for you guys likewise you know it's it's fun to uh it's fun to be part of the contributor community and the influencer community together um and it's it's a privilege and i'm a firm believer in you have to earn the right to be heard to earn respect and it's all about presentation to me and i think as long as you're inviting you're you're welcoming and what you're talking about and that sort of thing it's like it just kind of goes hand in hand um as long as you, you you pay attention to those things and you have like that core value system it's like honestly you can do no wrong so absolutely i agree 100 percent, 100 percent. so today we are going to talk to you about a film that is not only incredibly made it's an iconic crossover and it's so brilliant to watch it's also really freaking funny charles barton's 1948 special feature abin costello meet frankenstein starring bud abbott as chick lou costello as wilbur lenore albert as beautifully missed Dr. Sandra Mornay, Jane Randolph as the tough-as-nails investigator Joan Raymond, 
and in reprising roles from their smashing classics, Bella Lugosi as Count Dracula, Lon Chaney Jr. as Larry Talbot and the Wolfman, and Glenn Strange as the Monster of Frankenstein. As I mentioned, I have such a soft spot for this movie. It was one I remember watching when I was younger, and I remember not being able to really take it seriously because it was just so gosh darn hilarious. Fast forward to when I got older and I got more and more into vintage films and vintage culture, I saw Abbott and Costello talk to Elvis Presley and feature them on their show, and I remember thinking how hilarious they were and I just loved their dynamic, so it led me to finding this film, which I'm really happy I did because now it's one of my most favorite monster movies of all time because it is so funny but it's also so iconic to see our favorite monsters return to the screen and come together for the very first time. I'm just so excited to talk about this movie I can't even contain it. I'm, I'm right there with you. So according to the synopsis from Rotten Tomatoes, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein was the first of Bud Abbott and Luke Costello's horror vehicles for Universal Pictures. The inimitable comic duo star as railway baggage handlers in northern Florida. When a pair of crates belonging to a House of Horrors museum are mishandled by Wilbur, the museum's director, Dr. McDougall, demands that they deliver them personally so that they can be inspected for insurance purposes. But Lou's friend, Chick, has grave suspicions. When delivering the crates, chaos ensues when Dracula rises from the dead and has a plan. So let's get right into the discussion. The first point I want to talk about is the Disney style opening credits. Now I say Disney style because if you've seen the opening credits of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, it is literally the coolest and the most funnest thing because it's animated. You know, the animation style is very reminiscent of early Disney or the Looney Tunes or even just old vintage cartoons. You know, when you look at cartoons from back then, like, you know, Disney was just up and coming and Betty Boop even. It's like it's the same animation style and it kind of makes me happy because I'm an old Disney fan and I really, I really enjoyed seeing that. It was super unique. So I just had to put that in here for sure. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's funny. We picked this film and you that as a point to talk about because I'm a huge golden age animation fan the golden age of animation essentially started with Steamboat Willie which was the um, the first Disney feature not feature Disney short theatrical short featuring Mickey Mouse and it was um, it was black and white it was very very basic with what they could do with sound I believe it came out in 1928 and essentially, the golden age of animation ran from then, from 1928 through late 50s, early 60s. And Disney was like the pioneer. Warner Brothers doing Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies. Fleischer Studios was doing Superman, Popeye, Betty Boop, that sort of thing. Um, you know, Hanna-Barbera was over, like before the 60s and 70s, uh, with the stuff that we, you know, grew up with and love was uh, Flintstones, Scooby-Doo, that sort of thing. Hanna-Barbera was over at um, GM, and they were doing Tom and Jerry. Um, but, but yeah, you know, you, you get... It's always been kind of fascinating to me. A lot of people don't realize those cartoons that we're so used to, you know, they run five to seven minutes each short. Um, people just like... Know, our age and even our parents generation it's like oh we grew up watching these on tv 
it's a TV show. And it's like, no, th- those were the syndicated reruns. You'd go see these in a theater. And most of the time, when you'd go to a movie back then, 30s, 40s, 50s, you'd get a bit of news, some national news. You'd get uh, like a cartoon or two um, as sort of like an intro. Uh, and it was like, it, it lightened the mood. Um, so, you know, you go to the theater and, you know, catch a Popeye short and then maybe a, a Looney Tune short, and then you'd get your feature length film. Um, so to start, you, you know, I'm sure that was fully inspired by shorts, you know, the, the cartoons that were so huge at the time. Um, so it was really, really awesome to get that intro, uh, that animated intro and, you know, uh, the, the long skinny coffin and the short fat coffin and, you know, the monster like knocks on the coffin lids and uh, you, you get the classic, oh, like yell from Lou and oh, it's, it's, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. It's honestly just so fun to watch because yeah, you nailed it, man. You know, it's, it's like watching an old short animation film and, you know, I definitely have a passion for old Disney. You know, I, I love Looney Tunes, don't get me wrong, but old Disney's where it's at for me. And yeah, I could just I could just see in my head I oh do you remember I think this was nineteen twenty nine or something, but it was made by Walt Disney. And it's called The Skeleton's Dance. One of my favorite moments of anything ever. But for those who don't know what we're talking about, this was a Walt Disney created. Believe it or not, most people had a problem agreeing with it because they're like, this can't be Disney, but it was. It was literally the short film where these skeletons come out of their graves and they just do this whole dance in the middle of the graveyard in the middle of Halloween night. And it's honestly the greatest thing ever. And yeah, looking at these skeletons in this animation style, I'm like, there's no way. I'm like, you know, I'm pretty sure they plucked straight out of the sketchbook of Walt Disney. Oh, clearly. Yeah, absolutely inspired by. Um, On a sidebar note, this is something that you might not have been aware of, and a lot of people aren't aware of this. So Walt Disney's third feature-length animated film was Fantasia. And everyone knows Fantasia because of you know, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, but Mickey, you know, puts the star hat on and the broomsticks walking and that sort of thing. But my favorite sequence in Fantasia is a night on Bald Mountain. And that has, oh my gosh. <laughs> of course he escapes me. It's the giant, like, King of the Demons. I can't remember what his name is. Um, but he has these giant wings and, like, that sequence is, I think it's the final sequence of the movie. And it's set to, can't remember the name of the song. But a- anyway, Demon is was originally intended that they brought in Bela Lugosi, who used as, like, a model for the Demon. And um, ended up, like, he, he was there. There's a couple pictures of him on Walt Disney set. And he's, uh... He's got on pants, but he's, he doesn't have a shirt on and his arms are up. And it, like, if you go find the pictures and then you watch the sequence in Fantasia, um, it was like, you, you can still see the inspiration, but they ultimately, for the entire sequence, they used a different model um, for the entire thing. But, but yeah, you know, there's a little bit of Bela Lugosi there uh, in Fantasia, which I think is really special. That's honestly so cool. I, I'm glad you shared that because I didn't know that. And that's really special. So it just goes to show how much impact these Universal Monster movies had, even if people don't enjoy the monsters or don't love the monsters themselves, you know? Yeah, for sure. 
It's uh, it's so funny and just wonderful that they had that big of a um, just an impact, and it, it was like immediate. Um, uh, and uh, it was the Chernabog. That's what it is. It's um, the demon's name is the Chernabog. So. Oh okay. No, but that's uh, that's a great tidbit. Thank you again for sharing that. My pleasure. Yeah, I love that. This is what we're here for. <laughs> So the next point I want to talk about, I want to laugh about this with you, Ian, because I know how much he means to you. This is the first movie I've done in a while here on the Eldritch Review out of the whole season two, where I actually got to see Lon Chaney's face and hear his voice. Now, I have to laugh about it because if you've been listening to majority of season two thus far, Almost, if not every movie I've talked about has Lon Chaney Jr. in it. And I'm happy about that because I am a huge fan of the Chaneys, as I said last week. But it's kind of funny because every movie I've seen him in, he's either the mummy or he was the monster of Frankenstein or he was Count Alucard, which Count Alucard didn't talk that much, so you didn't get to hear him that much. Um, It's crazy because I'm just like... You know, Lon Chaney was like the biggest star of the time and like you didn't even get to see him that much. But now you see him again as Larry Talbot, as the Wolfman. And I'm kind of happy about that. I'm really excited about that because, you know, I think Lon Chaney and his father are just timeless. You know, when I think of like actors from like back then that I admire, the Chaneys definitely have to be on my list because especially Chaney Sr. Because they're just trendsetters. I mean, Chaney Sr. made movies at a time where, you know, it was silent. You couldn't talk, you couldn't make noise or you couldn't do anything, you know. So he had to really rely on his makeup and rely on his, you know, mannerisms to really tell his story. And it's unfortunate that his life got cut short so early. But I really believe that Lon Jr. really kind of took the mantle and said, like, look, I know that you passed away, you know, super early. So let me, you know, live up to my own legacy, but as well as your legacy as a Cheney. So I really just love I really love their dynamic and I really love Lon Chaney's work. So it, in a way, it was kind of like, oh, it's so nice to see you again, you know. So, so Lon Chaney Sr., uh, he did not want his son uh Porn Crate and Tall Chaney uh, to join the the film industry, uh, and I think a big part of that was Lon Senior kind of got to experience Hollywood at its inception. And, you know, even today, it's it's very cutthroat. Um, there's a lot of drama behind the scenes and stuff that people don't want to know, and things that get leaked and that sort of thing. And um, granted, it was a different time back then, but it was still very much people taking advantage of people. Uh, it, it was a it was a headache, and Cheney Senior experienced that firsthand, and he was very, very much of the mind where I don't want my son being exposed to that. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm being sensitive when I say this. Like, I love Lon Cheney Senior. Had he not passed away when in 1930 when he did, his son, who would end up taking his name, Lon Chaney, uh, and then eventually Lon Chaney Jr., um, to kind of you know, make sure we knew the difference between the two, uh, it was we wouldn't have gotten the Wolfman. We would not have gotten, as we know it at least, we wouldn't have gotten the Wolfman, man-made monster. You know, he plays... Cotteries in three of the Mummy films, Count Alucard, 
uh, the six Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Um, yeah, so, so that's something to kind of... It's interesting to think about. And um, I've heard stories from Cheney Jr. saying that his father was a harsh man. And then I've heard people and the family and close to the family negate that. So, uh, family drama. It's, it's there, and we're not 100% sure um, what happened behind the scenes with, with Lon Sr. and Lon Jr. I know that there was respect and love between the two of them, for sure, but I, I do know that there was some disagreement about things, and it's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, you know, I love the Cheneys, even if they had a rocky relationship, and even if Lon Sr. didn't want Lon Jr. to be in the film industry, but... You know, I think it really speaks true to the fact that Lon Chaney Sr. knew firsthand, like you said, what he went through. And why would he want his son to go through that? So I think he was protecting him and he was being a good father. The impression I always get from Lon Chaney Sr. is that he just goes balls to the wall on everything. He doesn't he doesn't leave any stone unturned. You know, when it comes to makeup, when it comes to acting, when it comes to being in a movie, anything he did in his lifetime, he always gave it 110%. There was never a moment where there was hesitation or there was like, eh, that was a little flat. No, if it was flat, he'd be like, do it again. Because he didn't want any kind of, he didn't want people to make fun of him. He didn't want any kind of brandishment on his name, especially the Cheney name, because he did have a son and a wife. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, you said it, you know, if it wasn't for Lon Cheney Jr., we would not have the characters that we have. And, you know, I, I said it last episode and I'll say it until the, the day I die. You know, Lon Chaney Jr. is literally Man of a Thousand Faces Jr. Not just because he is Lon Chaney Sr.'s son, but because of all the roles he played in his lifetime, it's just like his father. I mean, sure, Lon Sr. didn't get to play, you know, as many, like, monster roles, but his track record in other movies was insane. And same could be said for Junior. I mean, he, minus the Gill Man and the Invisible Man, I'm almost certain that Lon Chaney Jr. played each of the, of the Universal Monsters. He played Alucard, which of course is Dracula. He played the Frankenstein's monster and he played Karis the Mummy. I mean, that's Man of a Thousand Faces Jr. if you ask me. Yeah, he, it's funny, like he did not get along with Jack Pierce, um, whereas Jack Pierce and Boris Karloff are really, really good close friends. Um, and, and I always find it funny, like Cheney Jr. is in that makeup chair way more than anybody else. Between the five appearances with the Wolfman, you know, Frankenstein's monster, is the mummy three times, Alucard once. Uh, he was in that makeup chair a lot. And Jack Pierce had this intensity. Uh, he was, he, he would goof off. Like he and Karloff were very laid back kind of goofed off um but he also had this like tenacity about him so i've read and heard um and it kind of rubbed cheney jr the wrong way and i, I think it was much it, it was stuff like there's a picture where he's almost fully made up as the wolfman uh and he's like rearing has a fist reared back acting like he's gonna punch jack pierce in the face um and I think it was stuff stuff that would happen like when he was adding the, the yak hair and layers to his face 
making him the Wolfman, he had like a hot iron and glue. And that's how they would like, you know, add the layers of, of fur to the Wolfman. And he he got burnt a lot. And I don't think it was any, it was never serious, but it was just like a, he'd send him. Um, and Cheney Jr. would be like, ah, oh, you know, like, gosh, how many times are you going to do that? And I can picture Jack Pierce like, oh, just, just sit still. Like, <laughs> um, I think that's kind of how they like butted heads because um, Cheney Jr. was in that makeup chair for like six hours a day to apply that makeup and I know um there was a couple throughout those movies there'd be like a full production day for one scene it's like you know in in the uh in the original Wolfman it's the reversal like at the end of the movie where um where he dies and they go from Wolfman back to Larry and most of the sequels, it was the opposite. It was, you know, you finally got a, I, I think uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman was the first time you get a full facial transformation sequence um, from man to beast. And it would take literally, uh, you know, Cheney Jr. would be on the set getting into makeup three o'clock in the morning. Um, and then, you know, it would take hours and hours and hours and hours. Uh, you know, they'd, they'd go bit by bit. And, uh, you know, they'd do a layer of makeup. Um, you know, and they set, they, they created these things, um, harnesses, and it, like, locked his position in place to where once he got up, had another layer of makeup on. Once he got back in position, it, like, remembered where his position was. So that, that way, like, the overlay and the, the film you don't notice him moving. Um, and it's a really ingenious way to do it, but it would literally take from like seven in the morning until seven at night sometimes. And so, you know, most of these films took like a month-ish, over a little under sometimes to film. And sometimes there were like two or three full days of production and it was just Lon Chaney Jr. getting shot and for a transformation sequence as the Wolfman. And it's like, yeah, I'd be a little testy too. <laughs> as much as he loved it, he absolutely loved it. He always said, you know, the Wolfman's my baby. Uh, no one else will play that part. Um, and he played it five times and he's the only actor to portray that one monster. Uh, and that's one of the reasons he's my favorite, so. I love it. I love it. I think too that, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. knew that his father was so hands-on when it came to like makeup and when it came to all, all the things he did. And I think that he kind of was upset that like he couldn't do it. You know what I mean? Because Chaney Sr. of course did his own makeup for Phantom of the Opera in 1925. And I think, yeah, Chaney Jr. was just pissed. He's like, well, damn, you know, my father was so good and pretty much did his own looks. Like, why couldn't I achieve that? And, you know, it's unfortunate, but I mean, you know, you can't be talented all the time. And, you know, I think it sucks that like he and Jack Pierce didn't get along. I think it'd be awesome to meet Jack Pierce. But either way, you know, I definitely have a deep love for the Chaneys, the Chaney men. And it, like I said before, you know, it was like seeing an old friend, like you said. 
So the next point I want to talk about is a practicality point. And you just have to beg this question. This is another comedic point I want to discuss is when Larry calls Wilbur from London to Florida, he calls him explaining like, hey, don't open that cargo. And of course, Wilbur has no idea what's going on. Unfortunately, Larry couldn't really be much help because where he was, it was nighttime. And even more unfortunate, it was a full moon night, which we all know what happens when that happens you know of course he tore up the place and he's all growling and you know yelling and roaring on the phone and going insane it's so funny because at one point the phone is on the table and it's far away from larry as the wolfman but yet he's still growling and losing his mind but wilbur can still hear everything and he even comments on he's like you know this guy's growling like a wolf yeah, like how in the world can a phone that old capture him going insane like that from so far away maybe he was that loud i don't know but either way i look at practicality back then i'm like i could hold my iphone like six feet from me and it couldn't hear me like what do you mean yeah. well yeah you know i'm not entirely sure what capabilities of the phones were back then but he, he was in the same room the whole time right it, it wasn't like he been left the room yeah he's he's in the same room that whole sequence yeah i mean you know looking at the phone yeah um i mean have you ever heard a like a close i'm sure you haven't most people haven't um have you ever heard like a wolf actually howl um i mean they are loud they are really really loud um and you know i mean it is it's a movie and it's it's that was part of the gag like the comedy gag it's like he turns into the Wolfman and like growling and stuff, and uh, it's like ah. So, so I mean, technicality or not, it's it's like that. That's one of the gags. Um, but I'd, I'd imagine, yeah, right. I mean, it makes sense, and I'm here for the comedy. But man, it's like, what in the world? How in the hell is this possible? So the next point I want to talk about is how cool it was to watch Lugosi make the on-screen transformation from Dracula to vampire and vice versa. And I say this because he didn't get the chance to do that in the original Dracula movie from 1931, which I think it was so unique because he finally got his chance to go from bat to vampire and back again. And it's really interesting because now he finally has his chance to do it. You know, as I said, in Dracula 1931, he didn't get the chance to do that because the technology and the effects and everything they had now in the late 40s is not at all what they had in the early 1930s, especially during the Great Depression in America. But in Son of Dracula 1943 with Lon Chaney Jr. again, Lon Chaney Jr. actually became the first actor to really show a vampire going from vampire to bat and back to vampire, which I had to research because I was like, was this the first time? And it sure was. And I don't know, as a huge Lugosi fan myself, I just think it's so cool and so special that Lugosi finally had his chance. Oh, for sure. I, I know this movie, and this is something that I, I know we really wanted to talk about, this movie's so important because Lugosi only played Dracula twice ever in his career. And, the well, on screen, you know, he, he played Dracula for countless performances on Broadway in the late 20s before he got the role of the 31 film. This was 17 years later, and this was the second and last time that he would play 
Acula on screen. Now, he played Count Morna in um, Mark of the Vampire in 1935, and a lot of people think that that's Count Dracula, but it's not. Um, and he also played, I believe it was for Paramount, it was 1943, so it was that was five years before this film, um, Return of the Vampire, and that, oh, his name, his character name escapes me. I think it's Armand Tesla, something like that. Um, great little movie. Um, very atmospheric. And that was Paramount. If it was Paramount, I could be wrong. Um, it was kind of their sequel to Dracula without it being Dracula. Because it couldn't be Dracula at that point in time. Um, but that was, that was a lot of fun. And so between those four, you know, four films total where he plays vampires of Count Dracula. But this was the second time that he plays um, Dracula. And yeah, we do get those awesome animated uh, human, you know, human to bat, bat to human uh, sequences. And like you said, the first time that that happens on screen is in 43's Son of Dracula. Uh, we also get it in 44 and 45 with on Carradine as Dracula and House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Um, but yeah, we finally get get back to this point uh, with Lugosi playing the role that made him and ultimately made the Universal Monsters. Uh, and it was, it was not cut and dry. Um, Lugosi was kind of out of work at that time he hadn't done anything noteworthy for the last two years and when uh he heard that universal was making this film uh, he reached out to his agent he was like you know i want you to go and on my behalf and and see if i can't get a role in this and funny enough uh, carradine was not available carradine was on broadway at the time so he couldn't come back as dracula um they were toying the idea with this actor named Ian Keith and Ian Keith was actually one of the initial choices that Universal had to play Dracula back in 1931 and Lugosi you know being Lugosi was like hey I played the Count on Broadway I want this role I'll take this huge pay cut yada 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 and he fought and fought and fought tooth and nail and got the role beating out and Keith, there are a couple other actors. I think John Carradine was even like um, considered for a brief second back in '31. But yeah, they considered Ian Keith once again in 1948. And then um, th there's a story that's that people aren't 100% sure how accurate this is, but they said they think it was like a couple days before production like fully started, and his agent like at this point in time, Universal was. Uh, had transitioned from Universal Studios to Universal International. And that was kind of uh, like a rebrand. Um, so it is. it was still Universal Studios. They just called themselves Universal International. Um, there was like a ton of the people, you know, the big wigs kind of got removed. Um, they ended up firing... Jack Pierce at that point in time too. Not anything personal. It was just uh, you're kind of outdated. Um, your makeup, it's great, but it's too time consuming, too expensive. 
So they kicked him out and they got Bud Westmore. So Bud Westmore is actually the makeup artist in this film. Favorite. Uh, you can see a stark difference in the Wolfman. Um, but everyone said Glenn Strange is the monster. Uh, Lon Chaney is the Wolfman. They said the makeup, it was foam rubber um, appliances. And they said it was so much more comfortable, so much more bearable. Um, so they all actually enjoyed this makeup a little bit more. Um, but uh, yeah, so we had Bud Westmore's as key, key makeup guy. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, going back to Lugosi, um, they had these, you know, Universal International, new, new people running the business and that sort of thing. And uh, so the story goes like, it was like right before production started and his agent was like, boom, like kicked the doors open and was like, you, you know, Bela Lugosi is Dracula and the monster started because of him and he, you owe him this role. And um, uh, no one knows if that's 100% true uh, because apparently filming started, the first day of filming was February 5th, 1948. And I think somebody ended up finding Lugosi's contract for this film. And it was like signed 20 days prior to the, like the first. So no one really knows, but it's kind of a fun story. It's like Lugosi finally got what he deserved, like after being kind of side, you know, pushed to the side from Universal and a lot of the other studios. And it was, but regardless, like he gets to come back as Dracula for the last Universal film with Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman. So I think that's very poetic and well-deserved. And it's so much fun being Lugosi with, you know, I always say if Karloff had come back as the monster, this would have been like monumental to get Lugosi as Dracula, you know, Janey Jr. as the Wolfman and have Karloff come back as the monster. That would have just been like, mind melting i love glenn strange in this movie as a monster he's fantastic but man could you imagine could you just imagine having karloff come back it would have just been the greatest thing ever it definitely would have been one of the more like like the classics like it would have been like in the god tier more god tier than it already is but you know we we often talk so highly about like you know the original movies you know like the draculas the frankensteins the wolfmans like the original like installments you know we don't really talk about the sequels that much but no if this was in that case we would pretty much put it in the same class category as like the original amazing movies that we love to this day i think you said all of that about lugosi so beautifully i know that they i have a few listeners who will greatly appreciate you for that so that was absolutely wonderful and on that note I want to kind of bring up another Lugosi point, which is I thought it was satisfying for the reasons you actually just explained about how he was spearheading the operation of Frankenstein's monster and literally taking the mantle of being the master for everybody. Now, you have said it so beautifully, so I'm not even going to try and replicate that. But, you know, pretty much what you said, I mean, Lugosi, like, struggled to get roles in Universal because, you know, they just kept typecasting him and discriminating against him and really just gave him such a hard time for really no reason. And it's so unfortunate, but honestly, you know, even though he was really done dirty by Universal, I'm really glad that he was able to still have a pretty extensive 
extensive film career and in this movie after all the bullshit that Universal put him through it was really great to finally see him in such a commanding role I mean you know he didn't he didn't have to take the reins he didn't have to be the master he could have just been Count Dracula but no, he, he woke up out of the dead and was just like, you know what? I'm going to bring this monster to life and I'm going to be everybody's master. And the way it was made was just so perfectly done. And I just, I love Lugosi. You know, Lugosi is a role model to me. He's the reason why I got into classic monsters in the very first place. So I really, I really loved seeing him do this. And like I said, I, I, I can't equate to what you said because what you said was just so great. But, you know, I hope I said something of value oh of, of course you did man yeah like i mean the fact that that's that's who got you in, into this it's just that's that's really special and that's that's wonderful and um but to your point with with you know dracula being like the mad scientist like he you know dr mornay sandra mornay is more of the the medical doctor but to have you know dracula kind of show up as mastermind behind everything pulling the strings that sort of thing he's the driving force uh and it, it's a very different role for count dracula than any of the other universal films prior um you know everyone knows and loves the the original classic and then he's dead and dracula's daughter uh it's kind of you know ambiguous as to whether or not is lon cheney jr really the son of dracula or is he Dracula himself? They, they like because there is like a somebody says in that movie like oh, he is Dracula, but that still could mean like it's his last name, you, you know. So whether or not you know people argue that fact all day, and I, it doesn't really matter. Um, but then you get to House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula with John Carradine as Dracula, and he's very much supposed to be Lugosi's Dracula resurrected. Uh, and I love John Carradine as Dracula. It's, it's a very different take. It kind of works with those two films. He doesn't really interact with... He, he doesn't interact at all with Frankenstein's monster in those films. I think... And he doesn't interact with the Wolfman or Larry Talbot in human form either. There's like a brief little scene, I think, in House of Dracula where they kind of see each other. Um, and so... A lot of people, this is something I want to talk about, and I'll get your opinion on this. People argue this till the sun comes up and they have to go back to sleep. Um, is this a true, f like, fully fledged sequel to House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula? P people kind of argue this. Um, or is it kind of a standalone, its own little pocket sequel? Um, I think it's a bit of both. It, it stands alone on its own, perfectly fine. It doesn't need to be connected to anything else. Um, now, here's the point that people argue. Uh, House of Dracula came out in 1945, and that was three years before this. That ended Lon Chaney Jr.'s contract with Universal. He came back for this specifically as, like, an independent uh, star. Back at this point in time, all of these actors signed contracts with studios. And it's like, all right, well, you have X amount of films on your contract, and this is what you get paid, and you have to, you know star in X amount of films in your contract. Um, so, at that point, the House of Dracula was, I think, originally intended to kind of be it for the big three. Um, they didn't really know what they were doing with Frankenstein's monster. Like, in House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, he is very, very 
one-dimensional, shows up at the, you know, the mad doctor in those movies, revives the monster, that's kind of it. Um, he goes on a rampage, and the house comes crumbling down, or he catches on fire, something like that. Glenn Strange plays the monster in those two films as well. Um, Dracula, the first House of Frankenstein, he's very, very suave, kind of does what Dracula does. Now, ooh, preys on a pretty woman, and, you know, the villagers catch what he's doing, and then uh, they melt him with the sun. And House of Dracula, he wants to be cured. And Larry Talbot wants to be cured. Uh, they both want to be cured of their respective curses. And there's a very scientific approach to, you know, how they go about getting their cures. Dracula, it's blood transfusions. It's like you're injecting fully human blood into his veins will cure him. They, they explain it away. It's like a parasite in his blood, um, which I'm kind of like, like takes away from the supernatural curse. That's fine. Like you can explain it away. It's okay. Like to me, it was kind of like, yeah, okay. But the Wolfman, um, he gets cured, fully cured. Moon comes up at the end, like one of the last shots of House of Dracula is, is Larry Talbot, you know, looking at the moon. And it's a great, beautiful scene full of emotion with, with Lon Chaney Jr. And he's like touching his face and he's realizing like, you know, my face isn't changing. The, the hair is not growing out. And, um, that ends is kind of like a happy ending. Like, wow, okay, the Wolfman's cured. Uh, Dracula's dead. Frankenstein monster's destroyed. Harry Talbot gets the happy ending. Awesome. But fast forward three years, and there's still money to be made. How are we going to bring these monsters back? Well, you don't really have to explain it. Um, all the monsters come back, and so this is where people start to argue, is this a sequel to House of Dracula? Does it pick up after House of Dracula? Is it before, technically? Or is it just kind of its own, like, little sidebar? Yeah, like, I think it could easily be a standalone film. I, you know, because Abbott and Costello are in it, which, you know, Abbott and Costello are like the Three Stooges. They do their own films, they make their own movies. You know, everything they do is pretty much their own, hence why their name is in front of it. And I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely could see the argument from both sides of the coin. And honestly, I don't even think I could formulate an argument because, you know, the arguments on both sides are just too strong. At the, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's fun, like, when you're really well-versed in the films and the continuity. Uh, and, you know, the continuity in these films... There's parts of it that are like crystal clear and great. And then there's parts where it's like things were retconned. And like, I mean, perfect example, go back and watch Frankenstein and then watch Bride of Frankenstein directed by the same person. And he completely changes things that happen, um, like picks up immediately. And, and, and that's totally fine. Like it, it doesn't matter. Um, so that's, that's part of the joy uh of these films they kind of exist in their own like pocket universe and i always laugh about the mummy movies um you know the mummy's hand it's like it starts off in 1940 well then you jump in the sequel and and steve banning and um you know he's like 30 years older he's like in his late 60s early 70s and has kids and it's they mention the ongoing war world war ii like no time has passed um and then the sequel to that jumps like another few years. Then the sequel to that's like 25 years later. So someone did like the math based on things that people say. And the final film and the Karis mummy movies was The Mummy's Curse um, with Lon Chaney. And uh, 
would have been 1997 and like World War II is still going on. So like, it doesn't matter. You can't think too hard into this. Um, it's just kind of fun. Like, um, you know, continuity be damned and, and like real world time cares. Like that, it's just p part of the fun of it. And you can take what you want, leave what you don't. Um, just have fun with it that, that's what these movies are about yeah honestly like for me like you know i kind of love the idea of continuity i guess you know i'm just spoiled by what the mcu would become so i love the idea of like continuity and like you know universes conjoining to make like one big fat like multiverse you know mcu dceu you know I i'm such a huge fan of those multiverses so you know i like to believe that the universal monsters could easily exist like that you know granted back then people weren't thinking like that but i mean i think the idea is there and it's it's exciting but on that note i really kind of want to give appreciation and dedication to abbott and costello you know this movie and they themselves are just so funny and they're just there will never be another duo like them I mean, they really set the score for the Three Stooges. Like you said, they were so influenced by like the Marx Brothers and Charlie Chaplin, and it shows. I mean, their comedy is just so great, and it's original, you know? Yes, you know, we have good stand-up comedians these days, like Kevin Hart and that kind of thing, but Abbott and Costello did like sketch comedy, which I always kind of appreciate a little bit more because it's off the cuff, and it's just... You know, you never know what's going to happen because it's live. And I loved shows like that back in the 1950s and back in the 1940s that they did that. You know what I mean? And I will always, always have such a deep appreciation for Abbott and Costello. For sure. They knew what they were good at and they stuck with it. And I loved how they would incorporate their... They were known for like certain sketches and certain gags. Uh, one of which being the candle like the moving candle gag that you know and uh the early scene in mcdougall's house of horrors where he's reading like the plaque about frankenstein's monster and the plaque about dracula well he sets the candle on coffin lid and like you know count dracula is like opening the coffin and it's like the candle scooting and he's like scared um well they, they'd actually done that bit and their first wasn't so much of straight up horror comedy um, but essentially it was uh, it came out in 1941 and it was called Hold That Ghost it was like a ghost story um, I think it, it leaned much more in just the straight up comedy gag but it, it's like you didn't have the monsters so it, it wasn't billed as like horror comedy but um, but yeah you know they did the, the candle gag in that film as well and I, I really appreciate it and I think it's funny it's like Oh, well, they, they used it there. They used it again here uh, seven years later. And it's like, hey, it, it worked. Like, stick with what you're good at. And, you know, they, they pulled off tons of different gags. Um, and it's, it's fun that they knew what they were good at. And they just stuck with it. Totally. And, you know, like I said, it's just so original. It's, you know, Abbott and Costello jokes are just that. Abbott and Costello jokes. There's no, like oh well you know this was inspired by blah 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 like i'm sure they had muses i'm sure they had people that influenced their comedy but you know they never like directly stole from them and stole their material they really made it their own 
and they're just so funny they're so iconic and you know they really didn't have to do much to be funny i mean hell just freaking chick and wilbur's mannerisms especially wilbur's mannerisms just cracked me up when i was re-watching this movie it's just they're so they're so timeless the both of them yeah for it's like there's almost a, a smartness to it and i my whole my favorite bit in that whole film it's just uh oh chick oh chick um <laughs> you know he, he keeps calling them and it's like he's not really yelling um i think part of it's like he's so scared that it's like well if i yell really hear me um so he's kind of quiet but he gets that like little burst where he's like oh chick and uh man it, it, it's hilarious um and it's clean and you know it's kind of perfect for the film that we get yeah yeah it really is and that's a good point you know i think like they did comedy that like it didn't have to be like too like over the top or like raunchy or like political like we see with comedy today and even though sometimes that is funny and can be funny in itself like sometimes it's kind of like okay did you need to say that did you need to do that really you know i i kind of miss you know sketch comedy you know like old snl But with that, I really want to talk about the ending and kind of just laugh about how the fact that even in a comedic, dramatic movie, Universal still really loves the dramatic endings. They still really enjoy ending on like an explosion. And I really love, I love that about them. I kind of like, you know, it ends in a fiery blaze or it ends in explosion. It's so, it's so fun to see. It's so fun to watch. I just, I just love Universal. So the next point I want to talk about, which made me very, very happy, is at the very end of the movie, it's kind of funny. So Chick and Wilbur jump into the boat. They're trying to get away from the monster throwing barrels and crates at them. And they're thinking, okay, good. We're safe now. No more monsters to worry about. Let's just go back home. And of course, the Invisible Man is right behind them lighting up a cigarette like, did you forget about me? And it just makes me so happy and so excited because, of course, that is Vincent Price's voice. So I'm a huge Vincent Price fan. And even more exciting because the Invisible Man is one of my favorite Universal monsters. He's tied with Dracula for number one, actually. And, you know, I even though it was just for like a little short, like split second of the movie, I am happy that the Invisible Man was able to be in there. And eventually that Abbott and Costello got their own movie with him. So he had his own individual movie. So I don't know, as an Invisible Man fan, I just had to share this one. Yeah, no, it's it's a great cameo. And I think, you know, sometimes the earlier Universal films just end. It's just like, well, oh, okay, done. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's all, folks. And it's nice to get some sort of gag that, like you know all the plot threads are wrapped up and it's almost like you know modern films modern horror movies it's like oh it's you know terror is never over and i kind of like that that's like oh we're safe like you know uh, you know bud literally says yeah that's the last we'll see of count dracula the wolfman and frankenstein's monster and it's like hey guess what <laughs> he's right behind you um and it is great you know that I-, I love that they got vincent price to do that um and it's, it's so fun because uh, I, I know that this is something you guys talked about. Uh, you and Brandy talked about in your The Invisible Man Returns episode. It's um, That came out in 1940. So this was eight years after that. So he does that quick little reprisal cameo. 
Um, he wasn't typecast. Like, Vincent Price was not typecast in horror until 1953. Um, he had, like, a decent chunk of time where he was out there doing movies and was not into horror and somehow just happened. I, I mean, clearly a lot of it had to do with his voice. Um, but, yeah, it, it was great to have... We get four monsters in this movie, and, uh, and it's funny, you know, they're like, oh, and they jump into the water, and he just has that great laugh, and I can just see, like, if, if he wasn't invisible, like, I can just see Vincent Price dying laughing, just chiefing on this sig, like, oh, I got you guys good. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. I almost wanted wonder, too, if, like, that was, like, their reactions were genuine, because they didn't realize, like, oh, there's Vincent Price right there, you know? I mean, obviously, like, he wasn't in real life invisible, but, like, still, it's, like, if you don't know that, like, somebody's going to make a cameo at the end, it's pretty shocking, so that's that's pretty cool. So, next point I want to talk about, there's been a lot of discussions within the monster community about different kind of amusement park rides that we think Universal should have. There's been talks of, like, a creature-themed dark ride, kind of like Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland. There's also been talks of, like, you know, doing, you know, more of, like, a Universal Monsters Land, which I 110% second. But when I was watching this movie, I started thinking, like, maybe they should really do an Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein-themed ride, a lot like Pirates of the Caribbean as well, where... You know, you're in a boat or a raft or some some kind of craft, and you're going through all the animatronics. And of course, it starts the way the movie starts. It starts with Abbott and Costello in their job, and then they learn that, you know, crates are being shipped with monsters. They don't know it's monsters, but, you know, we only infer that it's monsters. And, you know, that just shows the whole story as we know it. And I just think it'd be really exciting because, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, in Disneyland, one of the things I love the most about it is that it's not like a sole, like, oh, this is just Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, Dead Man Tell No Tales or, or Dead Man's Chest. It's like Pirates of the Caribbean, period. And I think that if they were to do a movie just like this, if they were to do a ride just like this, where it's just a generalized, like, hey, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, it's kind of like, you know, you get all of the monsters, well, almost all of the monsters, and, you know, it's just such an, a fun adventure of a movie that it's like, why wouldn't you enjoy it? You know, I feel like if they do what they did with Pirates, it'll be so elaborate, and there'll be such a story to follow. I, I just, oh, I could see it in my head. It'd be so cool. I'm like, hey, Universal, I'll design it. I don't care. Like, I'll do the blueprints. I can't build the animatronics, but I will do the blueprint. I'll come up with the ideas. Like, hey, I'm here for it. Let's do it. Yeah, no, that would be awesome. I, I think to get some sort of comedy routine as a part of that would be re really, really neat. And I know it, it hasn't officially been announced, but the Universal Monsters theme park is it's happening. Um, and yeah. It's uh, so I, to my knowledge, it's going to be like a, it'll be a third park, and it's not just going to be Universal Studio. I'm not just the monsters. There'll be other sections of the park, but that's going to be like a big chunk of it. Um, so you know, if you go down to Orlando right now, it's it's Universal Studios and then Island Island of Adventure, and that's like where Wizarding World of Harry Potter and the Marvel stuff is. So this will be like a, a third park, and I think 
the majority of it is going to be the, the monsters. Um, to my knowledge, the, there's some blueprints over, like, bird's eye view, looking down at the land. Um, it seems like there'll be some sort of castle attraction uh, and then a lake. So, thinking, a lot of people are thinking the castle attraction will probably be something similar to, like, a full, fully ongoing um the universe like the halloween horror nights mazes it'll probably be a little bit more interactive but they think that they're gonna that'll be like you know you're walking through either castle dracula or um like you know castle yeah yeah and then you'll interact with like all the monsters and that sort of thing and then uh, they think that they might do uh something similar to like the jaws ride except it's going to be creature from the black lagoon um we'll have to wait and see i'm like i've talked to a lot of people and once it's fully announced when it's starting like we're gonna try to get as many of people in the monster fam to go down there and meet at some point when when the the park's up running (laughs) yeah so but i love your idea i think that's a great idea i'd love to have you know how they tend to have like those interactive rides will have like a host and it'd be kind of neat to have you know two people as Chick and Wilbur like and they're the hosts that like take you through adventure yeah right like on the like they have like little TV screens in the front yeah no that'd be really cool alright so the last and final point I want to talk about is a little bit of a personal one for you and me Ian Um, we get to take a minute we get to little have a little moment where we get to share our love for our monsters so in the movie as we know McDougal has a museum called the House of Horrors now the House of Horrors is his own collection of like wax figures and oddities of different sorts And, of course, that's where he was planning to display Frankenstein's monster Dracula before, like, all hell broke loose. But I just really loved it because the idea of, like, a house of horrors where it's, like, you know, you collect the artifacts, you collect the oddities, and you kind of put it all together in one museum. It's so intriguing to me, and I'm like, oh, my God, it makes me, like, imagine what my house of horrors would be like. So, Ian, I'm going to turn the question to you first and then i'll answer it for myself if you had a house of horrors who would be in yours or what would be in yours Ooh, this is good um well honestly you know i'd have to start off with the wolfman of course it Um, wouldn't be ian without the wolfman that's for sure (laughs) yeah for sure uh yeah i I think i'm gonna have to pull some things from different eras different genres uh definitely michael myers um i say the og the shape from god carpenter 78 film so so nick castle like uh i think um something that's scared like i'm not a huge huge fan of this particularly but it scared me to death as a kid a robert de niro's frankenstein monster um and I've told this story a lot of times. I'm not going to tell the whole story now, but it's essentially uh, when I first got in the Universal Monster movies, we went to Blockbuster to rent Frankenstein, 1931. And they got the, the boxes mixed up behind the display 
box and we took home Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, so four or five year old me, you know, we, we watched it. Like my parents weren't fully aware of, it's not the most rough, rough, gratuitous film. There's some bloody bits and it's a little frightening, but it's not god awful. I shouldn't have watched it when I was five, but uh, yeah. So I, like the first time I saw it, I wasn't really aware of what was happening. So it didn't scare me. And then I saw it like a couple years later and it, it actually did scare me. Um, so I say that because we had this, um, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts is here in Richmond where I live. And they had, it was probably there for like three months. Um, they have exhibits that like cycle through and then they don't stay like permanently. But one of them was Hollywood costumes. And it was like the actual costumes that the actors and actresses had worn and a number of films. Um, and it was huge. Like it was a huge part of the museum for a while. And we probably spent like two hours um, looking at them. And they had, uh, there was one part of one of the like exhibit halls that had five costumes from Meryl Streep's films and five from Robert De Niro's films. And one of them was the huge cloak that he wore as the monster and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And it was big, like it's a, and De Niro's not the biggest guy, um, but the cloak was just like massive. Uh, and it like, you know, drug behind him on the ground and stuff. So it was actually like, I've seen that in person. It was really, really cool. So I think it'd be kind of neat. Like, yeah, have him in there. Um, I'll say this, like, this is not, like, this scarred a generation of children. It's not scary, it's not, well, people would argue it's scary now. I love it. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Have the boat sequence from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> uh, people, I've heard horror stories where that thing just like, you know, you have Gene Wilder sitting there chanting, um, and, you know, Everyone's like hallucinating, and I have that whole scene like memorized. But but yeah, you know they're seeing like a chicken's head cut off, and like there's someone's face, uh, someone's face is like covered in centipedes and stuff, and everyone on the boat ride just like freaking out, and I love it. Like it, it's such a crazy, intense, and you know it scared a lot of people. So that was kind of fun. Uh, I'm trying, like, if I could think of something that, like, really scared me that I'd want in there. Hmm. I'm a sucker for, like, urban legends. Um, I think urban legends offer an opportunity where your own imagination puts a spin on something, and that's, like, way scarier than, than stuff that's, like, presented. Like, if, once it gets into your own head, there's nothing to really base it off of. This one is kind of close to home, so th this one's fun. There have been multiple documented sites, sightings, and this was back in like the late 70s, early 80s, I think, and this is up in Fairfax County in Virginia. Um, there have been sightings, and there's a bridge now. It's more of a tunnel that goes through like a, uh, like a huge part of a mountain, I think, up in Fairfax, which is close to D.C. And there was a guy in a bunny suit, a legitimate Easter bunny suit, and was ripped and tattered and 
uh, there was like two documented, like you can actually go read the police reports um, where it was like a lover's lane kind of thing. Like if you went through the Bunny Man Bridge in Fairfax County back then and like parked somewhere, you like the Bunny Man would come and get you. And he, uh, there was one couple pulled off the side of the road and, you know, they're like making out or something. Then he threw a hatchet through their windshield um yeah yeah and they're like oh my and they they see him and he's like just imagine like a a guy and like a real big man in a bunny costume like at twilight and he's just comes running (laughs) so uh, yeah the bunny man from from fairfax county virginia uh in there as well and i think he got something kind of a fun little genre-wide house of horrors there you go I think for me, like, you know, I definitely would have, you know, Dracula and the Invisible Man, obviously, because they're like my day one, like number one of all time. I definitely think I would actually have all the Universal Monsters because they all mean something to me in like their own unique way. Um, But I also I am a huge Halloween fan. So, yes, I would have the shape in my museum as well. Um, I would have 1980 Jason Voorhees, even though it's not really like, you know, Jason, it's his mom. I still would have that original Jason just because like, I love that movie so deeply. Um, I would have Norman Bates from Psycho because I'm a huge Psycho fan. And yeah, I mean, like, I I just love horror so much. So I feel like my museum would be like filled to its brim. Um, But I would also have like a room where it's just nothing but like oddities and like curiosities because I'm really into that side of horror where it's kind of like things and objects that are unexplainable and I don't know I just I love that uh, that side of it even though like it freaks some people out I'm just like it's so cool to me um so I definitely would have to have like an oddities room kind of like Zach Bagans has in the Zach Bagans Haunted Museum um but you know i'm such an uh, i'm such an organized person that like my museum would be like organized by like character or creature or whatever um no i i i'm i wish i could have my own museum now because like it would be so cool to just visit all day every day but you know once i saw the house of horrors and actually funny enough there is a old i don't know if it's still traveling or if it's still up but there used to be a really cool haunted attraction called the house of horrors that i used to go visit a lot and it's fun it's cool it's creepy it's filled with clowns which i love clowns i'm not afraid of clowns but it's like you know for some people it's like really terrifying but i'm like i loved it (laughs) Uh, that's really cool um clowns all the way i love them my roommate is scared to i mean death i'm not exaggerating when i say deathly afraid he is terrified of clowns like he will get into a fist fight over like no 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 get me out like i will hit you like that's how scared he is of clowns yeah (laughs) jeez i love clowns like there are some clowns i'm kind of just like "Mm, no i'm good like wrinkles no (laughs) but but like pennywise and like the joker and like you know clowns like that sign me up i love them even at the haunted museum yeah i brought up the haunted museum of zach bagan's place and you know he has like a full-blown like clown room where it's literally like walking through a freak show so you start out and it's like a freak show room where like this old like dark he's like a dark magician and he does like freak show things so he kind of 
he hooks paint from his eyelid and swings it back and forth. And then like he has a drill bit and drills it up his nose. So it's like freak show acts, which I love me a freak show. So I'm I'm into it. I'm excited about it. But then you go through and it's like a haunted house. Like there's freaking clowns everywhere and it feels like a circus and it's really chaotic because you really can't see very well because it's such close quarters and there are clowns everywhere and it's like foggy and it's like strobe lights and it, it's really you know it's really pretty much sensory like overload not gonna lie but what's wild like they just started doing this but what's really wild is they have a few actors and actresses that like dress up like clowns and they hide very strategically in the room to where like you think like oh it's just a mannequin it's no big deal and like you kind of let your guard down because yeah you're like okay it's just a mannequin big deal and then a clown comes out and like scares you and it's like i don't scare very easily because i used to be a haunted attraction actor but i do have a very fond memory of a clown scaring the ever-loving hell out of me in that room so i mean you know it's kind of like a hit or miss but no i love i love that room i just you know i love me a good freak show like old freak shows especially like old coney island you know oh, yeah all right so we covered all the points we wanted to talk about now as always this is everybody's favorite part of the eldritch review Ian, my friend, are you ready to hear some interesting facts about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, 1948? I am absolutely ready. Uh, probably know them all, but let's share them with everybody else listening, and maybe I'll learn something new. Surprise me. All right. All right. Well, with that being said, all of these facts come courtesy of my favorite source, which is IMDb. So let's roll. Number one, the scene in which Wilbur, played by Luca Costello, is unknowingly sitting on the lap of Frankenstein's monster, played by Glenn Strange, it required multiple takes because the scene allowed Costello to improvise wildly and pretty much just have fun with it, which caused Strange to constantly have to break the scene because he was laughing way too hard. Yeah, this is actually like, it's a, it's a pretty famous story. Um, and something I learned in my research uh, about that scene specifically, that was one of the scenes that Lou thought was stupid. It was like, I, I don't get it. Like, what, how is this funny? And the director was like, just just go. Just keep doing it. I'll kind of direct you through things to do. Uh, and then Lou kind of was like, oh, okay. Like, I, I see, you know, I kind of get it. This is kind of funny. But yeah, there, there's, a, there's some deleted footage. Um, do a little digging, you might be able to find it. Um, there's there's a shot where you know ah oh, they yell cut because Glenn Strange and you can actually see him like he's just you know um, Lou's like smashing his hand like and uh, and the monster just starts crying laughing ha ah it's really really funny yeah I love it I love it I love it so number two Boris Karloff refused to play the monster. But as a favor to Universal, he agreed to do publicity for this film as long as he didn't have to see it. There are several photos taken by Universal's publicity department where he is seen in line purchasing a ticket at the theater in New York City where the film is playing. And in other images, he is shown admiring the poster art for the film outside of the theater's lobby. Karloff later starred with Bud Abbott and Luke Costello 
In Bud Abbott, Lou Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff in 1949, as well as Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1953. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And this is something that I respect so much about Karloff. So immediately after Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, they went and made Abbott and Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff. And it's kind of a whodunit mystery. It, it's fun. I, I, I enjoy that movie a lot. And he plays a Swami, Swami Talper, I think is his name. And very mysterious. Um, you definitely get a lot more of Karloff's Indian heritage uh, in that role. Like he's very dark complected. Um, and Karloff knew going into that film and you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde at, you know, the monsters would be part of sketches and like the comedy and stuff. So Karloff knows that. And essentially in the killer Horace Karloff, it's like he himself, Horace Karloff is being the butt of the, you know, the jokes. And he was okay with that. He was not okay with as the monster he, that's how serious he took his role as frankenstein's monster he's like yeah you know a year later sure i'll come in and, and essentially play like a killer version of myself and yeah you can make fun of me yeah you're not going to make fun of me as the monster like i mean he took it so serious and um there, there was something he he said a quote something to the effect he's like i you know they they approached me um you know, for, for the role, like, you know, I, I'd already said no after Son of Frankenstein. Um, and he's like, I, I felt like the monster lacked empathy and he was essentially like a go-getter for other characters. Like, he, he, he was one-dimensional. Like, somebody else is using him. And it's like, I thought, you know, this film was just going to make fun of the monster. So I was like, no. Uh, but yeah, he, he did go do the publicity. And I, I it's kind of funny. Like, I, don't know if, I greatly doubt he got a, any sort of compensation for that. But yeah, you know, he, he went out there and pictures for like publicity. And uh, he's like, I don't want to see the movie. And I feel like he might have actually enjoyed it if he actually ever got around to seeing it. Karloff was a funny guy. I think he would have definitely enjoyed it. So speaking of actors who played Frankenstein, number three, actor Glenn Strange won the Frankenstein role by chance. Makeup artist extraordinaire Jack P. Pierce had seen him on the Universal lot when he was playing a pirate. Jack Pierce paid him $25 to stay late in order to try out some makeup. He covered the mirrors with paper and applied the Frankenstein makeup. Only when he was finished did he allow Strange to see what the mystery makeup actually was. It was at that moment Pierce decided that Strange would inherit the iconic role. Beyond the Frankenstein role, Strange was also best known to later audiences in the role of Sam Noonan, the bartender at the Long Branch Saloon in the long-running, very famous TV series Gunsmoke, which premiered in 1955. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Glenn Strange was a wonderful man and great actor, one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. I say that like I met him. <laughs> I'm saying this just from accounts that I've read. I wish he, he would have been a, a delightful guy to meet. Um, but Glenn Strange, um, 
he, he did. He landed the role of the monster that way. This was leading up to uh, House of Frankenstein. So this was 1944, and Jack Pierce had just spotted him on, and he was like, he was a big guy. He was six foot six. Um, so, you know, by comparison, Karloff was five eleven, and not nearly as stocky as Glenn Strange was. Um, and so I, I can just see little beady-eyed Jack Pierce, like, mm, look at him. So he's like, hey, I'll give you... He, he was he had, he had was working on some pirate film. And uh, so he'd already worked with, uh, with Jack. I'm sorry. Yeah, Jack had worked with Glenn. And like you said, you know, here's 25 bucks. He covers all the mirrors. It's like, just sit there. Hours and hours and hours passed. Um, probably three to four hours. That's how, how long it took years to turn somebody into Frankenstein's monster. And when he, you know, revealed the mirrors, um, Glenn, this was the quote that Glenn said. Was, By God, I'm Boris Karloff. <laughs> he didn't say I'm Frankenstein or I'm the monster. That's what he said. I'm, I'm Boris Karloff. And he loved it. Um, and so that's how that's how he got the role as Frankenstein's monster. And he played the part for three films, which is great. I love it. I love it. So number four, this fact actually kind of made me very intrigued. So famed director Quentin Tarantino, who we know from Pulp Fiction and the Kill Bill movies, has cited this film as a big influence on him on how to blend different genres of film. That's wonderful. That's really intriguing. I, this is one I don't think I was aware of. And uh, kind of looking through that lens with Tarantino's movies, I yeah, I can see where this would be. A, you can combine genres and do it right, like like Tarantino does. This would be a great influence for sure that's cool absolutely i'm a huge tarantino fan i love kill bill i like pulp fiction but i always kind of root for kill bill the most and yeah you know his movies are so just they're so expressive and they're so dynamic i mean nobody can do a tarantino movie but tarantino and it's so interesting to see that this movie that we all love so much is such a major inspiration to him so this is funny. Number five, during the costume party, Lon Chaney Jr. asks a random waiter, played by Bobby Barber, if he had seen Chick Young or Wilbur Gray. The waiter exclaims, seen them? I don't even know them. In fact, Barber was a frequent uncredited actor in Abbott and Costello movies and appeared often in sketches on their television show back in the 1950s. Yeah, so this one, this one I was aware of. That was that was kind of like a, a cameo for uh, Bobby and Bobby Barber. I'm, I don't think he got paid, but essentially he was hired by Lou Costello. This is like a proverbial court jester behind the scenes on the on the sets to keep the energy high and um and, and bobby bobby was good at it and he he'd get bothersome so another one of those deleted scenes um there's an actual there's actual footage of this uh you know they'd throw like pie, they'd have pie fights between takes and that sort of thing um they just wanted to keep that energy going and and everyone enjoyed it um 
even Bela Lugosi, like he he loved it. He he never really partook in the pie fights or the thing. Like he he was there. He'd watch. He'd laugh. Um, as long as you didn't do it to him, he was all for it. And so Lugosi, being the professional that he was, they made the mistake. <laughs> and and this was not like he didn't throw a huge fit, but. Um, there's a shot in the, this scene is cut, but in the film, when they're all on the island and the castle and everyone's being introduced and Count Dracula's walking down the staircase um, and Bud and Lou and I think Dr. Mornay are, are down at the bottom of the staircase and, uh, you know, he's I think, what was his name? Dr. Lejos, that's what Dracula's going by. So he's like talking to them. So the, the deleted scene had Bobby Barber. I think he has some sort of like black hood on. I don't know if it was like an executioner's cap or something like that. And Lugosi was completely unaware of this. Um, he's, you know, ready to take a, take the scene. And Lugosi was so professional. And he was a one and done when it came to his shots like he memorized his lines practiced and was like all right you know i know i'm good enough it's not like a boastful pride thing it was just like he was good enough like he worked hard he worked hard enough to where he knew this is only going to take one shot this is only going to yeah you know one shot and we're done so you know he's walking down the stairs and bobby barber comes up behind him like tiptoeing and creeping down the stairs behind him and uh everyone's dying laughing like um you know you can't really hear Lugosi but what he says is he 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 doesn't real like why is everyone laughing he turns around and sees Bobby and he like sternly yells no I'm a professional or, or something to that effect and he's like you need to take this seriously like we're working and he just like boom, boom like storms off set um and you know they had to kind of Take a little break and, and do it again. And Lugosi was like, you know, I'm all for fun and games, but it was like a waste of film, a waste of time. Like, you know, that was that should have been one shot. And I was I really do. I, I respect that. Like, I respect that about Lugosi. It's like, are you wasting my time? Like, I'm all for it in between takes. So kind of kind of a fun story. Right, right. It speaks true to, like we were saying, how serious Lugosi was about his work. And it's really unfortunate that he was done so dirty by Universal. And, like, they really didn't do him any favors. And it's like, look, you have a really serious, committed actor who's literally willing to pitch a fit at somebody playing a joke that, you know, like, it's, it's just, it speaks true to how serious he was about work and it's like dang you know i wish universal based people off of work ethic and not you know foreign background so the next point i want to talk about which is kind of exciting going off of lugosi actually is the animation sequences of him transforming into a bat and then returning back to his natural vampiric form were actually done by Universal International's animator Walter Lance, who, if you don't know who Walter Lance is, he is the famous animator behind Woody the Woodpecker. Yeah, absolutely. Walter Lance did the 
his animations, as far as I know, he was the animator for the opening sequence as well. Um, just, just really great, great work. Like, I mean, you can clearly tell it's animated when Dracula turns from a bat to a man, but it's so well done. It's like, it's a work of art. It's a, you know, you don't question it. Right. No, absolutely. So the next point I want to talk about, this one is kind of fun. Let's see who knows their vintage brands. When trying to seduce Wilbur, Sandra says that he is so round and so firm, to which Wilbur says, so fully packed, question mark. This is making fun of the slogan for Lucky Strike Cigarettes, which was and still continues to be the most pervasive taglines in the history of advertising, even still to this day. I did not know. That, that's, <laughs> that's really cool. And, and I know like advertising at the time, it's, I mean, still. It, it's everywhere like but that's that's really neat uh that's the tagline you know that's not just like product placement um that's kind of neat that they they got that in there right i mean i feel like it's one of those things where it's like you don't have to pay someone to say it. they just it's like back then they just it's all they knew kind of like for us you know with alka seltzer for example it's like you know i say pop pop you say fizz fizz somebody else says oh what a relief it is you know it's kind of like you just know it you know (laughs) right right yep so here's a fun one anybody a fan of the dead number nine grateful dead's jerry garcia cited this movie as one that initially terrified him when he saw it as a small child his father had died less than a year previously and garcia had trouble watching it Subsequently, he became fascinated with the film's three monsters, and in his adult life, they later became a major inspiration for him to for him to become the musician, filmmaker, and artist that we know him to be today. Hmm. This was another one I was not aware of. I'm I'm not a deadhead. I I appreciate Grateful Dead. Um, I think that makes me appreciate them a little bit more that that's really neat i'm not a deadhead either i mean I, I i'm like you i appreciate them i'm fascinated by them but if somebody asked me like hey what do you think about the grateful dead i'm like bro i don't know any of their songs but like no like i think it's really cool to know that you know even somebody like jerry garcia was so enthralled by universal monsters you know yeah. i mean it's just, it's universal <laughs> pun intended universal is you know we say it's the home of the monsters but i really think that if it wasn't for them we wouldn't have anything any movies that we know it you know so last but not least number 10 this was the final universal film to feature frankenstein's monster dracula and the wolfman until van helsing in 2004 mm, yeah sure from universal's end um that's that's cool and and one thing that you know van helsing stands on its own some people loved it some people hated it i grew up with it so it was a big inspiration for me um kind of my creative outlook like i'm i don't do it nearly as much as i used to um but I am a writer, like creative writer, and, and Van Helsing and some of the characters, specifically and Van Helsing, were really big influence and inspiration for me. Um, so I love it, and it, it it was really great to get another film um, to have you know all, all the big three together again. Um, and, and something that I find intriguing about Van Helsing that kind of mirrors and I feel was inspired from Abbott and Costello 
meets Frankenstein is, to my knowledge, at least in film, Van Helsing is the first movie, might be the first time ever, um, that you get vampire... You get, like, the, the lore that a vampire can be killed by a werewolf bite. Um, so you get, like, at the end of that movie, you get, you, Jack, you know, Van Helsing as the wolfman fighting Dracula as, like, the hell beast. And it mirrors the end of Avon Costello meet Frankenstein, where Lon Chaney Jr. as the wolfman is fighting Bela Lugosi as Dracula. And I'm like, ah, that's cool. Right. No, I absolutely agree. Like, I, I I talked about Van Helsing actually with Steven when we did the live stream on Universal Monsters Universe. And Van Helsing for me is really interesting because, you know, I don't love the idea of a monster slayer because, you know, I love our monsters so much. But I mean, that movie itself was just so badass. So I'm kind of like, okay, I, I'll let it slide. I'll let it slide. Even though you're over here killing my favorite monsters. But I think all in all, like, you know, it's a fun movie to watch. And, you know, though the way they did the monsters in that movie was crazy. Like, absolutely crazy. It's like, you know, it's almost like a whole nother level. It's kind of like level two, almost, you know? You get steampunk Frankenstein and Wolfman's, like, when he transforms, like, ripping his skin off. And, yeah, there, there's a lot of fun stuff in that movie. The, the story's not the strongest. A little convoluted at times. Uh, it's definitely a product of its time, but um, it's it's a Universal monster film, and that's, that's that's part of the history. Absolutely, perfectly said. So that concludes today's episode of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein 1948. I hope you've enjoyed listening as we've enjoyed reviewing it for you. Before we sign off, I just want to say a huge thank you to my guest Ian Bates for finally having the chance to star on the Eldritch Review and being one of the most humble and generous people I've ever met. As I've said numerous times, you are such a great friend and it's an honor and a privilege to know you. Thank you for coming on the show. I really hope you had a good time. Yeah, no, it was a blast. Um... This was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad I finally got the chance to, to be here. And um, thank you so much for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, you do great work and you, you do a wonderful job of bringing people together in the monster community. And that, that's really special. Hey, man. Well, you know, like I said before, I mean, you know, we talked about how we didn't realize this community was out there. And now that I know that it's out there, I'm like... All I know how to do is just give back to people and, you know, be my best self. And, you know, it's so funny because, like, people are like, oh, my God, you're, like, such this icon. And, like, they hype me up and, like, they make my head all big. And I'm just like, you guys, I'm just doing me. You know, I just love these monsters. I love these movies. I'm just doing me, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's that's where most of us are at. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting when... Yeah, people say, oh, you're an icon or you're a legend. And it's just like, what? <laughs> people know who I am. And, you know, that, that's, you know, as long as you maintain that humility and just, just having fun doing what you're doing. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if people are along for the ride, great. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. Be sure to like The Eldritch Review on Facebook under the name at The Eldritch Review Podcast, or you can follow me on Instagram at The Eldritch Review. Also, if you would like another way and method to support The Eldritch Review, consider contributing to The Eldritch Review's Patreon page. 
You can pledge any amount from $1 to $100, and depending on the amount you choose will determine the benefits you receive. Link is in the Instagram bio to contribute. And finally, be sure to check out all of our brand new Eldritch Review merchandise on the Eldritch Merch Store, featuring all new tank tops for spring and summer, the Creep Collection ringer tees, and more monster-themed designs created and designed by good friend and creep of the Eldritch Review, Austin Webb. Designs include The Mummy, The Wolfman, and The Bride of Frankenstein. We also have new accessories in the store, including three styles of Eldritch Review hats and COVID-19 pandemic masks. Be sure to purchase your merchandise today. Link to shop is also in the Instagram bio. Next week's episode will feature another one of my most favorite sequels of all time because it's so damn creepy and cool. Jack Arnold's 1955 sequel, Revenge of the Creature, starring Laurie Nelson as Helen Dobson, John Ager as Professor Cleet Ferguson, John Bromfield as John Hayes, and as our beloved Gilman, a reprisal from Ryu Browning Underwater, and Tom Hennessy on Land. Next week on the Eldritch Review, we'll feature another returning guest from Season 1, a serial killer aficionado, an avid gamer, and cryptid fanatic, my brother, Jug Thompson. You're a, you might remember Jug from last season's episode of the original Creature from the Black Lagoon film with Austin Gilhill. I'm super stoked to have him back on the show because that last episode was such a hit and I'm really looking forward to it. Additionally, I really can't wait to talk to you creeps either. So, until next week.